therapists going to therapy? Well, what kind of respected therapist would do something like that? Except, you know, any reasonable person? Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough Podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guests today are Joan and Jane, or the Therapy Twins. As you might guess, these identical twin sisters have worked professionally as therapists for a combined total of over 60 years. Despite being twins, they have lived very different lives, experiencing trauma through different filters and processing in different ways. Being up front, this interview is a bit of a roller coaster. It's the first time I've had three people talking on the show instead of two, and it took some effort to keep us all together. Also, it has the explicit tag for a reason. Things get a tad intense. Also, before we get into the show, I wanted to give a huge thanks to all of my listeners, including you listening right now, even if this is your first episode. The podcast has just hit the number two featured spot yet again on the Podbean streaming service, and the amount of attention it's been gathering worldwide has absolutely blown me away. I usually save this next bit for after the show, but I want to capitalize on the visibility I have right now to encourage listeners to reach out and tell me what topics you want to hear, or what guests you think might be great to invite on the show. So find the show on your favorite social media pages, or send me an email, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com. But for now, let's make our personal struggles visible. Welcome to the show, Joan and Jane, also known as the Therapy Twins. Thank you so much for having us. Thank Thanks. you so much for being on the show. You are also, I think, the first time in show history that I have two guests speaking on a topic. Wonderful. First oh. time for everything, right? Yes. Well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'll need it. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience, anyone that hasn't heard about you? Okay. Hello. We are Joan and Jane, also known as Therapy Twins. Um, retired from the medical profession, mostly psychiatric nurses. And what happened was we sort of got sick of the stigma against mental illness, as well as the stigma within the profession, which sort of frowned upon you having a mental... No, they didn't frown upon you having a mental illness. That was okay. They frowned upon you sharing that with anyone, especially the patients. I'm going to tell you why we wrote our book. We wrote our book because in psychiatry, it seemed frowned upon to seemed ever it was even give a hint that you might be going through a similar thing or you've gone through it. Whereas in AA, people prefer if obviously if you're going to be in AA, you're also in recovery, if that's a word you can use. And then a cardiologist never had a problem saying, oh, I suffered a heart attack as well. So we were sick of that. And the people within our profession who you would think was not, were not judgmental. Also, you know, you'd hear hints of making fun of because we're a little quirky. We're a little different. And that's been our whole lives because we're twins and we were under the microscope since birth. So Sure. Anyhow, so we come out with our own mental illness. We figured let's break that stigma once and for all. 
And like Joan said, we all know that AA and NA, I mean, there's support groups out there where knowing that the person with uh, more experience having the, the same problem is comforting. So what we did was we wrote a book coming out with our own mental illness and just a few tips on how to get better, saying, of course, don't wait as long as we did uh, until retirement, we mean. <laughs> and um, and because, because being in the field and knowing the ways to get better and being patient as well, I don't know about you, Joan, I kind of found it difficult um, to get better. So we came up with a lot of... Um, Comedy. Comedy. Yeah. Joan is a natural born comedian and uh, laughter really is the best medicine. No, it sounds right. And there is, you know, in a lot of cases that I've seen, people have this weird stigma where they're like, well, I can't share what I'm going through because that, you know, makes me feel weak. So I can only talk about it with this one professional person. And even then I shouldn't bring it up more than once. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, exactly. I remember, I remember, um, I wasn't, maybe I wasn't therapy at the time, but one time where I remember being on the phone with somebody and I just was my throwing my vomit, my word vomit at them every day and so many different people. And I remember saying to the person, you must be so sick of hearing me because I can't stand hearing myself. And it, it got to that point where I really couldn't stand it. And I don't know, it was probably Joan, who is the natural comedian hmm. that maybe came up with something or maybe her life was going better than mine. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And I mean, the glass can only be half empty for a certain amount of time. It really, truly is half full as well sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I liked, uh, I heard a take that said the glass is always 100% full. It's just that 50% of it is air. <laughs> oh my that. goodness that is perfect isn't it oh wow that could go through a philosophy class and i'll bet they can talk for hours and hours or decades on that one i am sure so you both were working in this field were you working together the whole time no jane was a nurse first and she was in actually in medicine and i never wanted to be a nurse ever ever my our parents used to say We come from a time you had choices. You could be as a female, you could be a teacher or a nurse. And I thought, both of those sound horrible (laughs) with zero fun, you know, headaches. So uh, I was striving to be, I think I wanted to work with my mother and she worked in the um, cafeteria in the high school. And she looked, she appeared to be having fun and washing dishes. I knew how to do that already. So that's what I was going to go into, but Our parents said no. So I said, well, I'll be a comedian then. But then I realized I have anxiety myself. (laughs) So I just made myself laugh. So do most most comedians. And then Jane started buying herself shoes and outfits. And I thought, how are you dressing that fabulously? And she said, silly, I'm a nurse. And I thought, can you get me to be a nurse? And she did. She actually literally got me to be a nurse. And that's how it started. I went into psych 100%. She went into medicine and then she switched into psychiatry, became a therapist first, became a prescriber first. She did everything first, except I don't believe she had sex first. That that was upon me before <laughs> before Jane. I had to show her that I ought to do something else. <laughs> hey, you got to take victories so you can get them, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we worked together in the same hospital Um for a while as nurses. And then we also worked together um, when we were therapists 
for a while as well. Yes. And the staff, if there was staff around, they usually had more of an issue or maybe more fun with it. The patients seemed to love it, just love it and find it normal. So basically we are representatives, I think, of the misfits out there because we're like misfits and we've always been like carnival people because (laughs) identical twins are stared at so much and compared so much to the point where, because remember Jones, the comedian, I was uh, in my thirties before, uh, well, in my thirties, I argued with someone that I was not funny. Um, They were telling me how funny I was. And I was like, no, 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 you have it all wrong. You know, the Landino society and community already told me only one already told me Jones was funny. So (laughs) stop wasting your breath. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. So yes, we worked together here and there. And we've been patients. We've been patients. We've been on psych meds. Hey, I've been a patient of medicine and mental health, and I've been on medical meds and I've been on psych meds. Yeah. I mean, that's where I get where, why is there a difference? Oh, and you know where the difference is, Colton? It's in society and in the medical profession. Um, there have been countless studies where even a female med student uh, treated an act, the actors that came in um, and actresses that came in complaining of chest pain. And even the female med student gave the men more treatment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's horrible. But anyway, people are afraid to admit this, these things, because if you're on certain medication, it carries a, a stigma and, you know, they just know that's, Women in general aren't listened to women on psych meds, fat women, you know, things, you know, in America, if you don't have blonde hair, you're not (laughs) as approachable. We found that out. I did not know that. We are so much more approachable when we, since we did this dye job. Yeah. We used to have black hair and no one came near us. And now (laughs) people come up to us in the grocery store and have full conversations with us about their own history. And we didn't ask, you know, we might've said we're the oranges, but we did not ask about their history. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. Since you have such, you know, a good history working in the psych profession, have you seen, hopefully at least some transition to being a little more talked about or, taking medication is a little more accepted than it used to be. Absolutely. It It, it truly is. And um, we love, um, you know, all the famous people that are coming out and talking about it and the brave uh, laymen coming out and talking about it. Um, and so we, what we would like to do, because Joan, did you want to say who you heard? We wanted to take it a step further because I believe oftentimes I can get a detail wrong um, but I believe it was the Surgeon General uh, Vavek Murphy that may have said that it's wonderful that famous people and actors, actresses and sports figures keep coming out with mental illness. But they have a, a they have a safety net. He said, why not the professionals yeah. coming out with it? And I thought, well, he must know somebody either in the profession or as a patient, because we know within the profession, there's such a stigma that we felt that's why we wrote the book. I kept saying the Surgeon General told us, Jane, she kept saying, why? I don't want to write a book. And I kept saying, so I hope it was him because I, I have at times yeah. 
I have facial recognition difficulties after a brain tumor at six months old. I had major surgery and that was one of the things I was left with. So, so if it was not the surgeon general, somebody said, somebody within a government meeting said it because I saw it and heard it. Thank you. (laughs) If that was the answer to the question, because I bet it wasn't. Because one of the things Joan and I have experienced a lot was, was patients giving us the brutal truth. I'm sorry, let me back up. When I first started and I played dress up and oh my God, I had my makeup on and everything. Patients did lie to me because when I calmed down and started dressing like they did, which was a normal, which was just a normal dress. dress. It wasn't all, all, you know, when you're more approachable, then they told me that they had been lying to me about blah, blah, blah. So Joan and I have a wonderful history of people just telling us the most embarrassing things in the world. Jane said at one point, tell me something I haven't done or I, I haven't. haven't. Yeah. So, and that, I remember that client saying, my God, she had me so comfortable, but I mean, even pharmaceutical reps or people who came by internet people to fix the internet mm-hmm. or, or the electrician, all of a sudden they would be sitting down with us saying, my God, I never thought I could tell anybody. And it wasn't always about themselves, but a member of their family who had either had mental illness or had been, you know, traumatized through rape or something like that. And so, the, yeah. So the point being is that what we've tried to do throughout our careers is to just make people comfortable because there's something called white coat syndrome where you're afraid when you are going into the doctor's office. And it's not just because um, this doctor is going to maybe see you naked. A lot of it is this intimidation that there's this smart, smart person. Now imagine it's psychiatry that if I tell the truth, they're going to judge me. And it turns out we're all human beings and we do. And there's a word for that. But what we are trying to say is if you would just be a real human, you actually don't lose any power if that's what you wanted or, or any, what's the word? It's not ego. No, if you lose your ego, you don't lose the patient's bond with you or the patient telling you and try all those things. Anywho. And then the other hard part is why are patients patients forever is the coping styles are, are too difficult. So, yeah, we just want to like share with the world that, you know, you could have depression, you could have anxiety, you could have PTSD, you could be schizophrenic, and you could still be a human being that's well-respected in society if we'd all just move our egos off to the side. Sure. And I, I assume there is always like the media impact of like twins are always on the same wavelength. I assume you guys were not at some point where you like, one of you was like, we need to share this information. And the other said, like, I don't, I don't think I'm there yet. I think for that particular topic, we were both passionate because we've always been advocates for the underdog, whether it's women, children, animals, mentally ill, etc. I don't know what our issue was, but our egos were so big that we could not sit in a, the room together, to a room it. together without fighting. The history was different. The fighting. Now they say everyone's history is different. The way <laughs> we had our own histories being written. Oh boy. Either being regular siblings, you fight saying that's not my parent. That's not how I saw it. Nope. You did that within twins. We both got bit by the spider and had the allergic reaction. Yes. No, yes, yes, only yes. one of us got. 
So yeah. in, our mother passed away, so now we don't know. Oh, we have no one to ask. And what's the question? Yeah, again, get back to what's that there question. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it just seems like there is always like this big push whenever you see it in like a movie where they're like, oh, identical <laughs> twins are identical at all stages. And it's like, well, that's just not true. Like you said, one of you got bit. And like, I didn't have a fear of spiders until I got bit by one. So then I assume like one of you now has a vastly different experience. Yeah. Yeah. We like the part where having a twin is like looking in the mirror. We hate that part. Oh boy. Oh yeah. She was (laughs) making a joke here. Here's what I want to say. We had, we hated, hated each other. If that's what you want to call it for a long time, because what happened was the comparison within the family and society you have to be different was the what, what we went through. You have to be. You can never be the same. So if one was funny, one happened to be smart. Therefore, why would I strive to be anything but, you know, a, a, I don't know, not to be able to have to use my brain at work because how could I? I was a comedian. So within that, I'm going to say is more difficult than regular siblings. And then what we probably were fighting about is we were on the same page. But the family pressure and societal pressure to be different, how many times people laughed in our faces? They said, you guys are twins and you're both in psychiatry. They burst out laughing. That's within and without the profession, without, you know, on the outskirts. Fucking embarrassing. You know, we're how old Mm. and we're still being fucking made fun of. Like, I hated high school. Mm. Mm. And that's what people act like. And so, I don't, I don't remember it. So, and I wasn't on any substances, so I kind of fogged out. So that's where we were off the page with doing it. Jane wanted radio. I wanted to be seen. Um, Jane wanted to do things in a. Um, Jane's very intelligent, mm, and really. she learns quickly. And no. you know, so you might be intimidated around her, and you might sound you feel stupid, mm-hmm. even though there's no such thing as a stupid question, Jane. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is coming. This is the younger twins' perception. But no, anyway. I, yeah, no, I have a, I have a, a, a stance, and I thought that it had a lot to do with my shyness that people misinterpreted. So anyway, by the time we became in our fifties, that's when we said this is ridiculous. Almost every single client said this before they left the office. You girls need to take this show on the road. And we didn't know what they were talking about, but just our own interactions made them feel normal. So if we could show the world that you can be a professional and yet when you go home and suffer from mental illness, you might have some of the same issues somebody else is going through. They feel a connection to you. Therefore, they feel normal and therefore society views them as normal and we can all move on and stop talking about, you know, our, our mental health. I mean, our mental issues being taboo. Well, I, <laughs> and I, and let me tell you something before I forget was part of, so the, can we say the name of the book? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait. I mean the new book that we're writing. So yeah. we're writing this new book called the, the, um, the ego has landed instead of the eagle has landed, whatever. So we thought it's a catchy title, right? I like but it. I found that the, um, writing the book, there was ego. The fighting was so ego based. I remember like me, I'm wanting something in there, you know, I'll die before this gets out of the book. And Joan, like not liking that story, but liking her story. And it was a lot of I, 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 before we could come together with, we, you know, 
was diff- it was difficult. Yeah, and agree on a reality. Because no, there's divorces rampant. No, kids can't even, they don't even know how to be friends with anyone. Everyone's on an iPhone. So what we thought was while we get away from humanity, you know, with all the technology and, and cancel culture and horror school shootings, why not embrace the misfits and show that a little compassion, tolerance, forgiveness, we think learning patience is a beautiful thing. Uh, and, and bring that out. So laughter being the best medicine is often the, the, yeah. the conduit that will actually change things because this stuff about serious talking, I'm so serious that I am so boring that I cannot stand listening to myself. And can I tell you too, who I was speaking to when I told her how I can't believe you're oh. listening to me because I can't stand listening to myself. This is perfect. <laughs> My ex-husband's wife. Oh, hello. hello. I was lamenting to her. Vomiting. And thank you, Carrie, for listening to me. My God. No one else. You know, she, you know what she must have done when she hung up the phone? Jim, I, I'm I'm so sorry. I misinterpreted the divorce. What you you and Jane. <laughs> anyway, thank God she still likes my presence. <laughs> Hey, at least you always have that. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So a, a large part of what you also kind of talk about is, uh, you know, trauma. Yes. Yes. And it seems like, you know, you have your own fair share of it, but why is it that you wanted to focus on trauma? Oh, we know. Well, most, if you had asked me while I was working, uh, what is your highest clientele's diagnosis? Because you have to come up with one on day one, even though it might not be true, but you can always change it for insurance purposes and billing. I would have said about, you know, 80% is post is trauma. And there, uh, it was so widespread and so uh, high, people started questioning me about it. And I got to say, now that I'm out of the profession and looking back, I would say 90 8% was trauma because why Jane? Well, because trauma is part of the human existence, the, the human experience. And, you know, we were talking about the categorization, the, the way we would diagnose people. There's this DSM thing that we keep updating. And Joan reminded me that it was, it had, uh, it really wasn't supposed to be taken as the word that it was uh, a guide for insurance purposes. And we've turned it into absolutes and then we've added on to it so that basically, well, you know, whoever is doing that, you know, thank you to them because almost everyone does have a mental illness right now. You could probably fit yourself in there. Um, Because one was uh, something about an unhappy spouse. I mean, that's not the medical term for it, but that's what, how I interpreted. And I thought, wow, boom, now we're at a hundred percent. I mean, we have something called reactive attachment disorder, and it has a lot to do with, um, for example, a kid in an an orphanage where they didn't form that early bond, that attachment to a caregiver. Yeah. Now now we're diagnosing it as a psychic issue rather than what it is, which is a community issue, because why a social issue? Why do we have, you know, with that, to get back to that school shooting, the the school shooters, they have a profile. If the police or the FBI are looking at it, I mean, it's mostly um, male, 
and uh, it's all America, almost 90% America males. And if you look at um, every single person, there's a misfit history. There's an uh, even if it's non-acceptance, it does not have to be a mental health diagnosis already in the system. A person who has led up to that, there is history. He may not have told people that are judgmental in the field his true history, but and he wouldn't. um, Excuse me, you know, people in the school and the community or his parents, he may not even told people. Yeah. So we're pretty passionate about trauma. Um, You know, we love history. Obviously, I don't know a lot of history because we're Americans. Because I don't know where. uh, But we we have a history of heavy alcohol or substance abuse after every war. And we don't really address that. Uh, We keep labeling people. Our opiate crisis is out of control. But we refuse to look at the country's because America's the greatest. We will not look at another country where things are going well. I mean, most of them are smaller than us, but I mean, we won't even look at anything because we didn't come up with it ourselves. So we have all these crises and every, I would probably say 100% of drug addicts or 100% of alcoholics or crystal meth addicts or whichever, whatever, if you look at it, there's a trauma. There's trauma. People don't just come from a comforting society with with love and acceptance in their families, et cetera, in the community, and then become drug addicts. We just don't do that. But our country won't look at any of that. Our- but I want to say something else. And I got more, I got a DUI and I started getting more calls for um, appointments and a family came in for family therapy, if you can believe that. And um, after they said they found me on the internet, I went, because oh, I knew I got a DUI and it was in the, on the, in the newspaper. And they said, we know about your DUI. And I thought, who the fuck are these people? Like, they're going to scold me and whatever. The family said, and they were beige to black, that because of your DUI, we knew you might be somebody we could let we could tell you what we're going through as a family, because if you're of color, you're even more stigmatized to getting mental health care. And that, that blows me away. And it hurts my feelings as a human, that that's what we treat each Mm -hmm. other like. And that a DUI would allow that person to come to me. Mm It's just really weird. I don't know if the statistics are still true, but they probably are. But back when we were practicing a black male was much more likely to be given an antipsychotic than any other, you know, a female, a male of another color, you know, children. But of course that all acting out children, um, they're on antipsychotic. There was a, there's too. an antipsychotic. It's a little on the older side now. It was one of the newer ones. And at some point in the, I think nineties, it was the number one prescribed medication to children in our country. So um, anyway, so we thought, let's just do something. Let's just come right out. We don't, who cares now? He who cares the the least wins because I really don't care what anyone says behind my back because I'm sure um, they're saying something. I remember your question and getting right back to it is now that we're older and we can reflect back upon our experiences and with, you know, multiple science degrees and further education, we can actually meld that together. And what we realized was our PTSD as infants 
1960. And what we went through all the way up to as adults, we realized that we had symptoms of depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorder, intermittent explosive Mm -hmm. disorder, suicidal ideation, both of us. With a plan and intent, I had access to it all the way to there. And I realized what I was hearing in the office was parts of me. And what I needed as a child, adolescent, and adult was not there for me. I asked as a young adult to a major university, teaching university known worldwide, I need help. Do you have a rape group or a therapist? And they did not. They never heard of that. Okay. So between having it, seeing it, educating ourselves, finally, we want to come out, let people know what we learned. Even at a very young age, I want 10 year olds to know this. You don't, you might save a life because somebody saved ours and we wanted to tell that story. So. Anywho, thank you. You know who else came out with her own mental illness, which was one of the people that I respected so much and was just so honored that she did it. And I thought because she did it, I could do it. And I'm not in her league at all. She's a PhD. Her name is Marsha Lenahan. I think I got her name right. And she created Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, DBT. And they're running DBT groups now in some high schools or junior high schools. Yeah, and it's, it's like cognitive behavioral therapy with a spiritual twist. It, it really uh, addresses uh, all the emotional dysregulation, et cetera. And it specifically came out to treat trauma, but it can treat everybody. And she was in psych hospitals and in new restraints as a kid. They called her schizophrenic. And she's a famous psychologist that came out with her own mental illness. Which still, though, was frowned upon and it was frowned upon. I know because we didn't see the trend. We just didn't see other people doing it, you know. Um, and the guy that said to us that you girls have balls, he had a, a doctorate in education and he just thought that he could never give even the slightest hint of his own mental illness. It's, it's a horror show. You can tell people you broke your arm or you have Crohn's disease or cancer, but you can't say you suffer from depression or type two diabetes, which is almost self-inflicted type one, maybe not, but they're relating type one. Now pediatricians have uh, articles about dairy and type one. So, I mean, why shame yourself from a intolerance? Why shame yourself from an intolerance to dairy? Nobody does, but you have to shame yourself because of a mental illness or the fact that you suffered trauma and now the whole, the whole world wants to make fun of you or point a finger at you. Oh, I've never suffered from mental illness. Well, good for you. Wonderful. Go, <laughs> go help others. Thank you. That was so unhelpful. Boom. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but that's what you get your whole life. No wonder no one comes out. You get shunned. It seems crazy to think like if I walked up to somebody and said, hey, I've been feeling really low and I'm thinking about killing myself. There, there's two options. One, they could turn around and be like, that guy's crazy. He was talking about killing himself. In which case, like, what do I care if I do it? It doesn't matter what you say behind my back anyway. Right. Or two, you could be like, wow, that's really hard. Would you like to talk about this? Like, there's two options and one of them 
is, you know, to be a dick. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. And, you know, when life is, is hard and a lot of times, I mean, we just had a pandemic, people are financially not doing well, have suffered total losses, you know, and with that, it's easier to be the dick because life is so difficult. But all those words, you know, there's a story. I don't even know who, I think Joan knows it. We're the girl chose to sit on the bench at a McDonald's or something and spoke to the person on the other side of the bench. Yeah, Just light, person, light conversation. Yeah. And then that person said, thank you so much. I was going to kill myself today. Yeah. But I, I didn't. So this, this lack of community, this, this uh, taking things away, you know, uh, one of the things I hate to get into it, but with nurses, if a nurse was sitting down, there was she, she, he or she had too much time on their hands. So, you know, let's work with fewer nurses. Let's work. Let's run this company with the fewest amount of people possible. And all it does is cause the, this thing that Joan talks about all the time, <laughs> horizontal violence. And and if if a school shooting isn't horizontal violence or, you know, fam all the way to family discord, like, hello. Because someday I, I can probably talk without tearfulness, but I was the violent twin. I was the one people wanted to call the police on, and I wanted to understand violence, and I couldn't. So I, that's why I talk about violence all the time, because there, is, there are reasons right from birth that you have, if your hypothalamus is dysregulated, <laughs> you have a problem with aggression. And uh, anger, you don't know how to process it. And, you know, who would have known that? I didn't even know I had a tumor, a, a brain tumor properly. I didn't understand what it truly was until I was in my 20s. I was going to go to college and they still had my records from infancy. I, I just was so embarrassed because I have this huge scar on the top of my head that's an X with no hair. And, you know. Joan, you're lucky you as survived. Twins, yeah, she's as twins, she survived that surgery. As twins, people would just look at the top of my head and say, oh, Joan, because they knew I had a bald spot, down to the teachers, all the way to the principal, all the way through my whole life on professional interviews, somebody would mention the bald spot on the top of my head. It was just awesome. <laughs> you know what I want to say is grow up in a small town, be taller than everybody, skinnier than everybody, an identical twin with large, a large nose and absolutely zero breast tissue, black hair, 30 something moles on your body because I'm <laughs> Italian. And by the way, I have hair that's wavy and straight. So neither looked good. <laughs> an anxiety disorder and try, and you know what, and don't kill yourself. I guarantee I'm going to I would dare you not to. So if you feel like a misfit, read the book because apparently people said they laughed out loud yes. to the point where it hurt their stomach because we must be comical in the way we describe what happened to us. That's all. And we've been told that we pre prevented at least two suicides. Yeah. I forgot about reading that. our book. Yeah. Which is great. I mean, reaching out and getting even one person to say, anything I think is really incredible that you know you can inspire someone to say like hey I wasn't going to tell anybody this but uh, I, I felt like you know sitting down and reading and your book popped up and I decided to read it and now I you know feel better in some way like that's an incredible thing 
I think that you can get across, you know, without actually even running into the person, like small actions can make a big impact. And that's why I'm always so surprised that people choose not to do that in person. So, I mean, we're talking about all these changes that have happened. What can we do to change some of the prejudices towards, you know, the stigmas that we've got out there? Like you said, certain communities, be that ethnic groups or religious groups or whatever it is that has, you know, their own mindset, like what can we do to change that to make mental health more acceptable to talk about? I think the biggest thing, because like, remember, I'm shocked that Carrie listened to me on the telephone and, you know, Joan saying she was the violent twin. And sometimes I was the recipient and it. It's horrible. You don't want to be around this, this either word vomit or, you know, people should run away from people like us for a reason. <laughs> um, but I think the best tip I can come up with, and I can't, it's in the book. I don't know which one is to start viewing somebody. Yeah through eyes of compassion, just change your perception, just like that. Start viewing some, someone, if you started trying to view your whole society with eyes of compassion, you would fail miserably, of course, you know, but since um, Americans, especially children, young people, there's, we don't have patience. We don't have attention spans, but if we could start practicing compassionate eyes or viewing somebody's point of view with compassion rather than intolerance and hate. And you got to practice slowly. Cause if I did that with Joan during her days, and that's, that's who I did this experiment with is somebody recommended. I try viewing her through compassionate eyes and I did it and it, it wasn't easy. Yeah. And it only happened say once a month, we still, but the more I viewed her through compassionate eyes, the less uh, uh, judgmental I was of her, the less intolerant I was of her. So what I saw was the more her humor started emerging. I mean, she was a better person as I became the better person. And a lot of people said to me, why did you have to do it first? Well, that should go back into that uh, philosophy class. Who cares? Yeah. Who did it first? Yeah. You know, when the basketball goes off court, everybody wants to do it for pick up that ball or the ball goes into the stadium, the baseball. Why not be the first person to practice compassionate viewing through to another human being? I want to say thank you for that. But I want to say being the one who had more aggression. I found out late, very late in life that my PTSD symptoms were almost identical to a human being that was incarcerated for over three years. Under three years, they were a little more like I thought Jane, (laughs) (laughs) but over, except those who are in solitary confinement, boom, that is Jane, that's Jane. But it bothered me because mine was um, assault and every other, everything else. But so if you have felt violated in life, which is so much more than a, a sexual assault, I mean, you know, down to our societal assault on, on the, the poor to everyone, you know, if you can't have a basic human right to feed children, to grow into the adults that we are, that no one cares about once you've left the 
the womb, pretty much. Once you've left the womb, you don't have as much care as the prenatal. You depreciate like yes, the, card the car coming lot. off the, the brand new car. Once you drive it off the lot, it's worth a lot less, I guess. So if I was that violent and as a, how many people think that an ex-con is that approachable? Like that hurt my feelings that, that I acted that way. Anyway, but that's why I was drawn to them too. And one of my exes who I am, who's so dear to me is, it was in the criminal justice system and he wasn't a cop. <laughs> he, he was incarcerated. But why wasn't, of course I was a draw, I was drawn to that. That person understood me and understood my violence. Well, within a violent uh, brain, I don't think compassion is anywhere near within mm-hmm. maybe uh, the type of mm-hmm. solitary confinement and meditation you can do and how much you can mm-hmm. learn in those first few days. I'm not mm-hmm. saying diminishing solitary, mm-hmm. but I want that person. I, I, I implore that person. If you have somebody violent in your life, but you love that person and you're, you might even be afraid of that person, get that point across that they want to validate what you have been through because then we can move on. PTSD people cannot move forward because um, unfortunately, we are a weak species and we have to be validated. The animal in the jungle doesn't have to be validated. We have to do that. We say we're at the top of the food chain. I believe not. I believe we're at the bottom. Mentally, the way uh, the human being treats the other human being, I think we're at the bottom of the food chain in that intellect. And I would like to tell anyone who maybe heard what I had to say when I started viewing Joan through compassionate eyes, and maybe Joan said it, um, by no means did I feel an ounce of compassion for her, (laughs) for all the um, abuse that I felt she vomited all over me, that under no circumstances that I feel an ounce of compassion with her. I wanted peace in my life, and I knew that I wasn't giving this relationship up. I, I actually probably knew that I probably couldn't biologically because it's um, we are the original identical twin, the egg split, so we share DNA. And so I was looking for a technique. So the technique was uh, foreign to me. I figured it would probably work because in psych, you know that when you change the way you approach person B, they will come back at you a little bit differently. You teach these things, but... But you don't practice. So if you want peace in your life and you want a better society, you know, it's it requires a little acting. You know, do you think every parent wants to say, oh, you poor thing when with every cut and bruise a child experiences? No, we act. We're like, oh, come over here. Mm -mm. Mommy kisses it. Go back and play. We didn't care about that scratch. We're like that little thing. You're upset about it. No, we act. So start, you can change a nation by just a little acting and then you will see it come. It's like bonding with an infant. There are those women that said, I fell in love before they came out of the womb. Really? I'm like, what? I had to help Joan one time um, when my son came out and the nurses, they plopped them around my chest, right? They pulled the Johnny off of me because there was this thing called skin to skin. It promotes bonding. Apparently it's important. And I was in shock. This was an unwanted pregnancy that I decided to keep. And all I thought was, my God, how am I going to learn to like this? You know, I left my, the, the father of the baby. I, that was my divorce. 
And it comes with time, but it started with acting because I knew how important that bond is. I'm a nurse. I knew this was very, very important. So I did a lot of skin to skin. I tried to breastfeed for a little while, which I did. I was successful. And I pretended that I loved this infant until I fell in love with my son, Adam. Thank you. No one will admit that either. The, the, they might behind closed doors, but in public, who says that? I just did. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can keep it in because I'm not embarrassed. My son already knows this. Well, Brooke Shields came out and look what happened to her when she came. Anybody who comes out. Yeah, they, it was called postpartum depression. There's as well. still a stigma attached to it. It's like, oh, how great. Really? Did people really like her coming out with some people tried to say it didn't even exist. And that's the thing. We don't all have to agree with everyone. We don't have to have the same belief system, but we can be compassionate toward our fellow human. Right. Because if identical twins have the same DNA, that was a lot of, I don't know if other twins went through this, but the argument for me was you have the identical DNA as I do and you and you feel complete and you feel different about this topic. So the rest of my life, I'm trying to drill that topic in her. Anywho, did we, did we answer your question? No, you did great. Okay. Um, it made me think back. Uh, I have some friends that work in emergency services mm-hmm. and anytime I am out with them and people who are new to them, for some reason, conversation drifts into like the messier aspect of like being a paramedic. What is that yeah. like? Um, and it it made me think when you were talking about this weird thing that we do as humans where we're like, wow, give me the worst. Like, what's the worst thing? Because over time, I've noticed that they use this blanket statement that just says, I don't mind talking about my experience, but don't ever ask me the worst thing I've seen. Like, if you could just do that. And it's weird to have to think that they need to say that. Because that's what everyone wants. And I assume like, you know, you've heard it as well, where people are like, what's the worst thing? Like, let me hear the worst thing so that I can, I can feed on that. Yeah. Yeah. Joan has a lot to say about a book she read um, and how about trauma (laughs) and how we as trauma survivors, wait, I don't like that word either, but no, uh, you know, that label, but as um, trying to work through your own trauma, how much you are attracted to certain types of violence and yeah. or certain mm-hmm. types of isolation mm-hmm. um, where it's the it's Joan, you want to explain it? You read the book. I didn't get that far yet. Yeah, it, uh, because I had that whatever I had, I was drawn to, to violence because I was violent. So when Scarface, Scarface, I, be, I believe, is one of the most violent movies that people talk about with Al Pacino. So when it came out to the theater. Jane was married and I had no friends. So she and her husband would invite me periodically on a limited basis to go to the movies and Scarface came out. I couldn't wait to see that on the big screen. So we watched the movie and um, I'm walking in front. Jane and her um, Jim is his name. Jim are walking behind me and Jim, uh, a very intellectual person. Jane, Jim, very intellectual, <laughs> very hard to be around sometimes if you didn't feel intellectual. Anyway, I hear over here, one of them, I think it was Jim who said, who said to Jane, my God, that was violent. And I 
without, I probably like a Tourette's uh, voice. I immediately said, you thought that was violent? Huh? Like I was blown away. I didn't think that was violent. Oh, that movie calmed me down. And I, when I read about that physical, physical phenomenon within my body, that book made me cry so many times because one, I did smile when I realized it wasn't my fault. That was like, whoa, now it wasn't every disaster in my life and every person that left me in my life always said it was me. It was me. It was always my fault. Me, me. And I thought, huh, might as well kill myself. Boom, that'll be over. And yet it wasn't my fault. And this country hates children. This country hates children because as a child, to this day, if you go through what Jane and I went through, you'll never have the resources available to you because you won't even know you had trauma. A lot of our uh, commercials, are the, our attitude is pick bootstraps, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. And uh, it was difficult as an infant to do that. And I broke all of my toes in the incubator. You know, I heard a cognitive behavioral therapist um, do a lecture about how people will, so some people can't get over, you know, they can't drive I-95, they can't go over this particular bridge, the anxiety, they can't, um, whatever, walk into a, uh, a theater. And years and years and years ago, the psychologist would take the patient out that was called flooding and they would go over that bridge with that patient and, and try to expose them to this. Anyway, this CBT guy, did a lecture on why is it that in America, especially, um, we love horror flicks, we love um, carnivals with roller coasters, we like to feel, you know, our stomach go up to our throat, all that butterfly, the fear, and the shock with the horror, right? And I don't know if it was him who said it, or when Joan read this book that she was reading, was that when, <clears throat> if you think about when we're drawn to, let's say, a horror flick, and we're attentive to this movie. And Joan mentions it gave her a sense of calm while watching it. Well, somebody else might be so afraid they can't even stay in the room. But what I think is happening that as you're watching this organized horror that has nothing to do with you, you know, and your neurotransmitters are firing, but it's an organized, you're seeing an organized picture when you're experienced your trauma it was an explosion a disorganized mess and i think there's something to that and you could talk to scientists that study every little thing in the brain and the pet scans etc and what they see the different periods of the brain uh, areas of the brain lighting up it explains things but there's an area that lights up in the brain with certain types of symptomatic trauma that mimics strokes and that is why we have speech issues either overly aggressive or can't talk at all during a trauma trauma can't scream for help wow i had not i started stuttering in my 40s and then my father said gee i had an uncle that did that started in his 40s and i said wow did it resolve he said no and I thought, oh, that's too fucking bad like i thought i was just going to be a stutterer and again you know i i mean i love our book for for pure laughter but the book the body keeps the score which is pretty much not in mainstream psychiatry that i know of the body keeps the score pretty much was shunned out of the dsm and I didn't find this out until retirement when I had a chance or a minute to read. And I think that biologically that book should be 
the number one bestseller. And it is actually in PTSD, but not the number one bestselling book. It should probably be required reading for everybody. As a sufferer of stroke victim-like trauma-induced brain problems, even as an adult, um, I'm sorry, I definitely didn't get the mental health care or the physical health care. You know, it was laughed about, you know, oh, take Paxil, you'll get over it. Thanks. Yeah. With the sexual dysfunction was awesome for the relationship. Let me tell you that helped as well. Um, I know I've been going quite a while and I'll let you go here real briefly. I had an audience question that I thought was interesting to uh, just to pose to you and see how you two felt about it because I read it and really felt a bit lost. They asked, uh, my therapist has said they feel like we can't make progress together anymore. Should I start over with a new therapist or am I supposed to take this as a sign that I am done with therapy? Well, wow. does, does this person want the grown up answer? <laughs> I mean, the young Jane would have probably changed therapist because I would need a therapist that clearly could work with me, right? But what I think that therapist is saying is there's a roadblock. And what I implore the patient to do is if they like that therapist, if that person doesn't disgust them when they walk in the room, they don't want to say, you know, you don't know what you're fucking doing. Where did you go to school? If you like that therapist, the problem is you. The reason being is no one can fix me but me. So if the therapist can come up with some new techniques, and maybe you can as the patient, I sure did because I was so unhappy, things weren't moving forward, and I did not want to change therapists. So what I did was I started looking at all different things, and it was harsh. They, it all pointed to me. Every self-help book will tell you, you are the problem. Yeah. And it, no, I, right. So it's me, true. it's true. So, but I needed help with my depression. So the medicine can only do so much. The, the rest has to come from, you do have to do a lot of talking and this and that, but maybe if you could do a little journaling at home and coming up with new ways if your therapist is willing to help as well stick with you is maybe new ways of, of, of coming about every opportunity that you or interaction you come with. How about the compassionate eye thing? Remember, I didn't feel it for the other person, but I, I tried it as a new technique. Um, there's no right or wrong, but I wouldn't want to start my story all over again. What helped me, and I, I want to say I'm concrete, I'll be very concrete every so often. I would take it literally, don't throw stones if you live in a glass house, which um, should she stay with her therapist? Should she not? It could be the therapist doesn't want to change her style or of, his or his style of uh, therapy. Because for me, if you had to journal <clears throat> and bring it back for me and to Look at stuff you've written down. Remember, nurse or teacher. I didn't want either profession, but I especially didn't want teacher because um, there wasn't enough Motrin and we had to do substitute teaching. Yeah, there was not enough money or Motrin in the teaching profession for what you have to do. So I went into psychiatric nursing. Anyway, I think with me to do the type of therapy where you had to uh, go over journaling, that, that was too much for me. So give her a, give her a quick option. 
answer for you. What would you do for the patient? The, for, as a patient, I left. I left. And now that I've had life. now that I've had time to listen to Joan, I was thinking again that um, the thought of changing does sound stressful. But remember, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So sometimes it is a really good idea to switch therapists because, um, as my mentor always told me, if if somebody uh, left therapy, whether it was on a positive note or unfortunately, rarely it was on a negative note, he always would say, they'll be back. And you know what? They were, they would come back because, you know, what is therapy if it's not talking about the most stressful things that have gone on in your life and you're supposed to do it in a priest's voice, you know, or, a, you know, a library voice. I am sorry. I don't think we can do that. So, you know, you could talk to your therapist, honestly, and say, you know, if you're sick of me, that's what I would do, because I had a client and we used to talk about that all the time. And it was wonderful that she said, Jane, I, you know, I've seen your face too much. I'm going to skip a couple of weeks. Like, yes, let's do that. Um, but there's no right or wrong. Um, you could always try, try someone new, go back. But again, it's Try something new. If somebody says, have you heard this technique might work? Have you heard, you know, uh, depression, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's always difficult for us to hear those statements, but take a look at it. The, only, the worst that can happen is you get better. Yeah. No, sounds good. I've appreciated your time immensely. I wanted to give you a little time to talk about your books and the work you do. I know you mentioned the one, The Ego is Landed which I still enjoy the title on, but yeah, mention anything else for the audience and uh, we'll, we'll get you out of here. Well, the first book is from under the hood and uh, that's just, you know, coming out with our own mental illness. So there's a lot of car metaphors because we grew up with our father and carpenter and a car guy. So then the second one, we want it to be extra funny. The first one's really funny. The second one is going to be funny as well. The ego has landed because what doesn't change is if your ego keeps entering the room, because then all you're doing, you're in a military fight and that's it. You're going to defend. Once you've defended yourself, you've lost your battle. You like you're, well just go to therapy. It's again. like you're in a courtroom. And is that yeah. how people want to live? Is in go courtrooms? Therapy, somebody will listen because your family certainly doesn't want to hear it or friends. Okay. That's oh www. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say dot. Now I really sound old. Therapy twins, one word, all lowercase.com. And then you'll find out the rest of our stories that are funny and the book. There awesome. you go. Thank awesome. you. Thank you very much. I've appreciated having you guys on. It's been super fun. Thank you. It has been. Thank you, Colton. (laughs) Thank you for listening to another Just Dumb Enough podcast episode. If you want to help the show grow, rate it five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. The other best thing you can do is just tell someone about the show. It's a good way to get a conversation started with even a stranger. Hey, have you listened to the Just Dumb Enough podcast? Why, no, I haven't. Is it good? I think it's great. I'll have to download some episodes right now while we become best friends. You see how easy that is? Reminder for everyone that I'll be down in Austin, Texas next week from the 8th to the 14th if you want to hang out or chat, grab food, or just show me around. I'm going to try and have some episodes prepped and ready for that Monday so I don't have to do any editing while I'm on this trip and bring the mic with me. 
Remember, you can reach out to me at dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever. Lastly, the rankings have changed a whole bunch with all of the increased attention. Number one, the United States, dropping to only 50% of the overall audience, and Oregon and California firmly as the top states. Number two, Australia, with I think this being the first time they've been in the top three. So thank you, Australia, especially Victoria, who's leading the uh, continent. Three, Canada, with Ontario just barely holding its top province spot against Quebec. Four, the United Kingdom, just barely below Canada. I know they have a rivalry. And then number five, India, struggling and succeeding against some hardy competition. If your country, state, or province isn't in the top five, Share this podcast with others in your area and climb the ladder to earn recognition. That does it for this week. I'll see you all in the next episode. Bye bye